Hello and welcome to the EMJ Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and I'm one of the Associate Editors on the Journal. And this week I'm going to bring you the highlights from the May edition of the EMJ. Now, again, first a little bit of an apology. We've had so many things going on. So, okay, this podcast is coming out a little bit late, but that shouldn't stop you from going back and having a look at the journal, having a look at the papers I'm going to talk about in a minute, and also finding lots of other great stuff out there. So I hope you're enjoying your emergency medicine at the moment. It's busy times here, but there's lots of interesting things to do and always things to learn. So let's get on and think about what's really current and exciting in May. So this one was put together by Caroline Leach, who's one of my old friends, works in Coventry and is relatively new to the EMJ and has put together an interesting resume of the most interesting, or maybe not the most interesting, but the papers which have been of particular interest to Caroline as we go through. So what has she picked out? Well, the first is around health promotion in emergency medicine. And this is something which I think is is actually something we could do a lot better. There's an awful lot of patients who come to the ED who don't access public health services in other ways. And often people don't go and see their GPs. And we potentially could be an area where we really develop an ability to improve their general health of our population as opposed to just dealing with the pathology. And one of those, of course, which you'll all be familiar with, is the effects of drugs and alcohol in the emergency department. In certain places, it's fair to say that we do get the idea that health promotion is critical in emergency medicine. And one of the areas is around brief interventions for the use of alcohol. And the science behind that is is pretty well established, although it's not actually being done everywhere. So this month we have a paper which is a prospective cohort analysis looking at the efficacy of brief interventions for drug use in a US emergency department. And so as expected, I guess, there was a large loss to follow up, 40% and 44% in each arm of this trial, um, which unfortunately led it to be relatively underpowered. And we don't know if some of those were due to mortality from drug use or various other different factors. But it is one of those papers which we need to look at around brief intervention for drug use as opposed to just using it for alcohol. So the brief interventions, they lasted for about 20 to 30 minutes and had a significant number of questions. That can be difficult to achieve in a time pressure department. I think that's been one of the problems we've had with brief interventions before. Some of them aren't that brief. But even then, and okay, there's the issue of follow-up and, and lack of power, but in this study, they didn't really demonstrate any reduction in self-reported drug use or an increase in use of drug treatment service utilisation over a 12-month period. A bit disappointing, really. There is an accompanying commentary by Richard Saltz, and that discusses how we still have a responsibility to address this. So even though this study didn't really find any definitive reason to do it, I think it's an area which we need to explore with further. And maybe maybe the ED isn't the place to do it. Maybe we just need to signpost these people to experts in that. And that's kind of what we do in my neck of the woods. We have good local community services and we point people in those directions. Of course, if they don't want to go, that is a problem. And unfortunately, many of the people using drugs and certainly in my health economy are, are leading pretty tough lives and aren't generally engaging in other forms of services either. So a big area of our practice, a big problem. Should we be involved in it? Yes, but we don't quite know how as yet. Obviously, the EMJ is a very broad journal. We take lots of different papers, so it's not perhaps that unusual to go from brief intervention in illicit drug use to paediatric intubation. And there's a nice paper this month looking at paediatric intubation. I'm sure you're familiar with the idea about how far you should put an ET tube in in a kid. So many emergency physicians will use something like the APLS, Advanced Paediatric Life Support Calculation of the age of the patient um, divided by 2 plus 12, and that calculates the length 
of an oral endotracheal tube and intubation. But it's, it's, it's a formula, and we know we have problems with formulas in other areas of paediatric practice, particularly weight, for example. So there's a study this month which retrospectively analysed the images of 499 Korean children undergoing CT of the neck and actually measured the distance on scan from the mid-incisors to the mid-trachea, kind of where you should be putting the tube. And they derived a decision formula based on weight, for instance, which is a little bit more complicated. It's 5.5 plus, get this bit, 0.5 times the weight in kilos. And height for children is 3 plus 0.1 times the height in centimetres. And that did perform better than the APLS formula or the Brozolo tape at validation. Now, is there enough evidence for us to radically change practice here? Possibly not. It's not quite the same as actually doing it in practice. And it's not quite the same because this is a single country analysis. So we don't know whether this is going to work in other populations. But it's certainly interesting to look at. What we really need to know is on how many occasions when we use the formula is not how just how accurate it is, but how often it's sufficiently inaccurate to be clinically important. And I don't think we have that data yet. It's the same with weight studies, actually. Again, it's not whether it's the average better. I'm interested in the extremes, not the average. Does that make sense? I hope so. But that's what's really important. If it's out by 0.1 centimetres, really don't care. If it's out by 3 centimetres, probably care. Get my point. We then go on to a study looking at methodology. So there's a great paper, which um, I'm sure you know all about, positionality in quantitative studies. You know about positionality? Do you? Well, I really didn't know what the word positionality was. Constructivism? Yeah, a little bit about that. Reflexivity? Sounds like a therapy that's an alternative thing that you do with your feet. Um, but it's a lot more than that. And you need to read this fascinating article by Anissa Jafar. The idea is that when you're appraising quantitative medical studies, you really need to know why the researchers were interested in the topic and what position they hold to see how they might generate and then interpret the results. It's a form of bias, really. An example of Rivers' famous study on early goal-directed therapy eloquently describes how this might be relevant when assessing the validity of the research conclusions. So I think what Anissa is saying here is you have to be inside the mind of the researcher to understand why they did what they did and how they came to the conclusions that they did. And actually, this is positionality in quantitative studies. We do very similar things when we're looking at qualitative studies, where the position of the researcher in qualitative studies, clearly that's important and, and that's well described. So this is, I think, taking that concept into quantitative studies. If you're a researcher, if you're into your critical appraisal, definitely read this. We then look at more quantitative stuff, I suppose. Physician productivity, it's not a simple sum. Absolutely. Really interesting. Been quite a lot of work around this in the journal over the last couple of years. But emergency departments commonly use productivity to plan staffing to judge individual performance according to the average number of patients seen per hour. I can hear everybody groaning. It's not a good test. But there you go. We need some data here. We need some science. So there's a retrospective American study in the journal that found that the number of patients seen by EM attendings, so consultants in the UK, declined with every subsequent hour of the eight to nine hour shift. Why? Is it fatigue? Is it accumulation of patients, waiting results, having to go back and reassess them? You know, lots of different things could influence that. But additional patient arrivals in the ED were associated with a modest increase in hourly productivity, but this was lost towards the end of the shift. And there's differences between the three studied sites emphasise the importance of using local data to assess productivity. I'm quite passionate about this. I think productivity in terms of measuring number of patients per hour is actually a very poor measure of, um, of productivity, actually, because 
It depends what sort of patients you're seeing. It depends what time of day it is. It depends what else is going on in the department. It depends on the complexity. It's, it's so vague and generally unhelpful that there's always going to be some variation. Clearly, if you see none or you see thousands, I'm worried about you at both ends. But there's got to be a normal range which we can work with. The other thing about productivity and just looking at numbers is it can potentially be gamed. So you could just choose to see the easier patients, even if they're in the same triage category. I'm sure we can identify some patients which are quicker and easier to see than others. And so and I just don't think it's a good measure. What I do think is important is when you get onto very long shifts, productivity clearly goes down. I mean, if you work people, in my experience, beyond eight hours for most people, the number of patients they, they see beyond eight hours just becomes almost negligible and I genuinely wonder why we have shifts that, that run that long um, I know you know a lot of doctors want to work them a lot of nurses want to work longer shifts because it means you work fewer days but actually you just get more tired there's lots of things anyway an argument for another day but have a look at this working time productivity burnout tiredness fatigue they're all important and related things and this is a, an interesting paper that might shed some insight into those issues of course one of the issues which does slow us down a lot is overcrowding in the ED and I'm sure we're all familiar with that. So there's an interesting paper on whether ED overcrowding impacts on the clinical care of medical patients and we know yeah it does but there's good evidence out there. Right okay what do we need to know? It's can you imagine it's getting to the end of the shift change over time and the emergency department is very busy with long waits to be seen. Do patients get less comprehensive investigations and treatment at these times? Interesting question. And are they more likely to be referred for medical admission inappropriately? Hmm. As a lot of people may think that that's the case. So Canadian study found that for patients with COPD, heart failure or sepsis, there was in fact no difference for patients referred at the end of the shift compared with the middle. And it was the same for patients referred at times of high compared with low surge. I thought that was interesting. It's not what I would expect to see. Conversion rates, i.e. actual admissions after referral, were pretty high, over 93%. I think that, that's pretty similar to the UK. And the authors agree that the results may vary for other less obvious medical diagnoses. I, I understand why they've just looked at those diagnoses. It's an easier way to do the study, but we don't know if that's going to be the case across everything. So that's a positive thing. It suggests that we are delivering the same sort of care, irrespective of time and also um, the end of shift changeover, which is good. Then we also look at a paper looking at the differences in epidemiology and outcomes for elderly versus young STEMI patients, so those with ST elevation MIs. So this paper from Singapore is a registry review of over 14,000 patients who had a STEMI with a comparison of those under 65 as opposed to those over 65. The more elderly patients were less likely to receive primary PCI with greater rates of late presentation, patient refusal, contraindications and more comorbidities to weigh up in the risk-benefit analysis. Median symptom to door times were 26 minutes longer and the door to balloon times were 9 minutes longer in the elderly group. Maybe due to the fact that 28% of the older patients had no chest pain. Again, we know this from other studies. And the authors conclude that the absence of primary PCI is likely to worsen outcomes for the over 65-year age group. But in the over 85 patients, the survival benefit is probably less pronounced and requires more of a bespoke individual risk-benefit analysis. Because PCI is great, but it's not without its complications. So, that's May. Sorry it's so late. Go back and have a look at it. It's really good. Test yourself on the chest x-ray image challenge and diagnose why the patient had acute chest pain following tooth extraction. Does sound a bit weird. And you probably have seen this condition before, but this is a kind of unusual one, so go and have a look at that. So, 
Keep up to speed with the podcast. Um, follow us on Twitter, Facebook. Keep in touch. Read the journal. Let us know what you think. And there's loads more in the journal than I've talked about today. So get out there and have a read and have fun and love your emergency medicine. Bye. Bye.